The police can't protect you. All those that have reason to fear me had better sell out and give £10 out of every 100 to the Widow and Orphan Fund. And do not attempt to reside in Victoria, but as short a time as possible after reading this notice. Neglect this and abide by the consequence which shall be worse than rust in wheat in Victoria or the drought of a dry season to the grasshoppers in New South Wales. I do not wish to give the order full force without giving timely warning, but I am a widow's son, outlawed, and my orders must be obeyed. Ned Kelly, The Gerildery Letter, 1897. Happy New Year, ghosties. I'm Kayla. And I'm Kaylin. And this is Ghostie, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime and paranormal. Let's get into it. Awesome. <laughs> good afternoon. Good morning. Good night. Yes. Hello. Do you, when do you listen to us? Yeah. Let us know. <laughs> um, so today we are going to be talking about Ned Kelly. Ned Kelly was an Australian um, bushranger and outlaw who is um, essentially one of the early factors uh, in Australia's identity. Um, And so I'm writing this. It it was also set in Victoria, which is my home state. So I'm writing this and I'm like, oh, I know these places. I know how to pronounce them. I don't have to look up like how to pronounce things. And then I was like second guessing myself like literally like an hour ago like and I'm like I'll just write like little how to pronounce it anyway but is this how to pronounce it or is this how I grew up pronouncing it oh no now I need to look up how to pronounce it properly so then I messaged my my mom and my nan and I'm like this is how you like how do you pronounce this and my nan just replied and was like breaking it up into <laughs> oh I'm like gosh. we've already sorted this out but thank you so much nan I love you um my mom called me and she's like really Caitlin like, <laughs> Americans aren't gonna know how to pronounce these no, things anyway we're not. like but I and you're a local, so like you, you, it'd be like this is how locals like pronounce it. Well, yeah, or just weirdos in Mildura, but anyway. <laughs> so, how for people who don't know, like moi, mm-hmm. what is a bush ranger? So a bush ranger is basically the equivalent of like a like an outlaw, like a cowboy. Oh, okay. Like you know, robbing stagecoaches, robbing banks, oh, okay. like that sort of thing. Yeah. Nice. Um, but the bush is like the forest like it's the bushland it's, so it's not like oh, okay. a bush mm-hmm. it's like a forest it's the outback yeah <laughs> it's the outback um but like not desert outback like trees outback oh okay um i'll post some pictures of the bush yes around please. in these areas later the bush. <laughs> but i also need to apologize because this is gonna be a long one that's fine. I have written almost, well, I have written about nine pages and then Jay's finished off the rest. Well, maybe 10 and then he's written the rest of How an 11 page. Oh, okay. Story. That's not bad. That was like my Chillingham Castle yes. episode. I couldn't just leave out all of these things because I, I found it so interesting and I hope you guys did too, obviously, but I just, there was like that, like I just couldn't leave out. There's, there's so many things that happened at this castle, and I did leave yeah. quite a bit out, but I felt like I included the important stuff and everything, too. And Definitely. And I was kind of writing this, and I was like, it's kind of sounding like a history lecture. But then I'm I was like, with that. honey, can you reread it? And just, if there's anything that you think is just unnecessary, mm-hmm. can you just cut it out? Right. And Jay's reading it, and he's like, 
yeah, there's nothing to cut out. It's all important. I'm right. Like, okay, you. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it was. But he also had some lofts, so I'm like, maybe oh, it's not going to be super dry. Good, good, good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, let's, let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. <laughs> so in the early 18th century, the British government had been transporting convicts overseas to their American colonies. Um, as the death penalty was perceived as too harsh for some crimes and South Wales was seen as too close a destination to send their prisoners. Mm. However, this transportation ended with the start of the American Revolution. Yeah. Thus, an alternative site was needed to relieve the overcrowding of British prisons and hulks. A hulk a hulk is like a prison ship. So like they would put the boat oh. off the coast of the ship and you would be like working on the ship basically. Oh, okay. Um, in 1770, as many Australian children will know, <laughs> James Cook charted and claimed possession of the east coast of Australia in the name of Britain. And the British gov government needed a way to strike first so as to prevent the French colonial empire from expanding into the region. And so Australia was chosen as the site of a penal colony. Mm. Um, in 1787, the first fleet of 11 convict ships would set sail for Botany Bay. They would arrive on the 20th of January, 1788. The first European settlement on the continent would be called Sydney. Mm. And the colony would be called New South Wales, mm. which is still the name of the state today. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Most of these states are, like, what they were called when they were a colony mm. is the name of the state today. Well, it's like the 13 colonies here. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. In 1803, a penal colony would be established in Van Diemen's Land, which would later be called Tasmania. Okay. And Van she was like, Demon? that's so metal! And I'm like, no, it's not demon, like, ooh, the demons, they'll get you. <laughs> it's uh, named after a man, Van Diemen, so it's D-I-E-M-E-N. D-I-E-M-E-N. Oh, okay. So, like, this is a really stupid question, but I've never been to Australia. Yeah. Um, so are Tasmanian devils only in Tasmania? Or are they around Australia? Um, Tasmanian devils are... Uh, they're endangered i don't they're not oh. extinct they're endangered so i think outside of like a um i don't think they exist anymore outside of zoos or reserves or like oh, like okay. sanctuaries yeah um though i think they were just found in tasmania i don't know there's also the tasmanian tiger which is extinct yeah. oh okay um but yeah, I don't know if that was only on this little island or if they were all over Australia at some point oh, okay. and they died off. Oh, that's sad. Um, yeah. Though there are some people that still claim to see them today, which really? we will cover in a cryptids episode. Oh, nice. <laughs> that's exciting. Um, so Van Diemen's Land, the colony, and another one was uh, found in Queensland in 1824. Mm. The Swan River Colony, later Western Australia, was established in 1829 and was initially intended purely for free settlers, um, but they began receiving convicts in 1850. Mm. The colonies of South Australia and Victoria mm. uh, were established as free colonies in 1836 and 1850 respectively. But as a side note, a population that included thousands of convicts already resided in the area that became known as Victoria. Oh, okay. So basically, the two ways that you could go to Australia were if you were a convict or if you just wanted to be like a settler and like be like, you know what, I need a change. I'm going to move my family to this country in the middle of nowhere that is basically like the wilds. The majority of convicts were transported for petty crimes, while the most common reason for, uh, with the most common reason for transportation being theft. 
which included pickpocketing, shoplifting, stealing horses and sheep, highway robbery, housebreaking, and receiving stolen goods. Okay. Um, you didn't have to steal much to be exiled. Simply stealing a handkerchief or a loaf of bread was deemed a transportable offense. Dang. Um, strict. <laughs> super strict. I don't know if I included this in here. I think I cut, cut it out. But one in seven convicts that were transported were women. Oh. And so it was just, my family is starving, my mother is dead. Yeah. I'm going to go steal this loaf of bread to feed my siblings. Right. Um, They also had another minority group of convicts. However, they make up the most well-known convicts, along with the women, were, um, like, uh, political prisoners. Oh, okay. Um, So, you know, a spy or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. The more serious crimes, such as rape and murder, only became transportable offences in the 1830s. However, these crimes were also punishable by death, so hardly any convicts that were transported were transported for these crimes. So most of these convicts, like these prisoners, are just poor people who were down on their luck and needed to do what they could to survive. Interesting. I always heard that it was like the worst of the worst, like Mm -hmm. convicts. Because they would hang them if that was the case. Well, that's true. Interesting. Mm. Okay. The transportation of convicts to Australia peaked in the 1830s and continued to significantly decline in the following decade as protests against the system intensified through the colonies. In 1868, almost 20 years after transportation to the eastern colonies had ended, the last convict ship arrived in Western Australia. During the 80 years of penal transportation to the colonies of Australia, over 160,000 convicts had been transported from Britain. Wow. One such convict was John, also known by Red, Kelly, who was born in Clonbrogan, County Tipperary, Ireland, in 1820. When he was 21, Red was found guilty of stealing two pigs and was transported on the prison ship the Prince Regent. He would arrive at Hobart Town, Van Diemen's Land, on the 2nd of January, 1842. His sentence ended in January 1848, and Red decided to stay in Australia, moving to the colony of Victoria, where he found work on a farm at Wallen Wallen. So, once given their freedom, most ex-convicts stayed in Australia mm. uh, and joined free settlers. Some of them even rose to prominent positions in Australian society. So, basically, so he was convicted when he was 21, so that would have been 1841. He, it doesn't say when in 1841, but he didn't get to Australia until the start of 1842. Okay. Like, this was a long trip. Like right. Britain to Australia by boat, mm-hmm. and it wasn't even, like, the cruise ships that you see today. It was, right. like, sailing ship, wind-powered. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> That's all. So I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't blame these convicts for being like, you know what, I'm going to stay here. I'm not going to um, sail again. A lot of them got really sick. A lot oh, of them yeah. uh, died. Mm. And also, you're coming from a poor family, so mm. you don't know if your family is still alive right. or if they've been transported to Australia just to a different colony. Right. Like, you don't know what's going on. You're going to stay. Um, however, Red was not one of these uh, convicts to rise to prominence in Australian society. Um, he, On the 18th of November, 1850, he would marry Ellen Quinn, the 18-year-old daughter of his employer, James. The couple turned their attention to gold digging and earned enough money to buy a small freehold in Beveridge, just north of Melbourne. Fun fact, this is about 20 minutes away from where my family live today. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Um, the couple would have eight children. Mary Jane, born on the uh, born eighteen fifty one, and only lived six months. Oh, that's sad. Annie, who when she was married became Annie Gunn, mm. born eighteen fifty three. Edward Ned, possibly born eighteen fifty four, but the exact date of his birth isn't known. Some also say fifty five. Mm. Margaret, who through marriage became Margaret Skillian. Uh, I also saw Skilling. Um, but that could be, like, when they were signing a document, it was spelled wrong or, you know, whatever. Born 1857, James, also known as Jim, who was born in 1859, Daniel, or Dan, born in 1861, Catherine, or Kate, who through marriage became Catherine Foster, or Kate Foster, born 1863, and Grace, who through marriage became Grace Griffiths, mm. born 1865. A lot of those names sound really familiar, actually. Kate Foster especially does. Yeah. I don't know if any of them really... <laughs> Sorry, we have our light on a timer. Uh-oh. <laughs> scared me. Um, I don't know if any of them really, like, Annie Gunn amounted to anything. I think, like, Annie, get your gun. No, I don't know. Hold on. Annie Gunn. There was a fast shooter named Annie in um, the Wild West. And there's a musical and movie named after her called Annie Get Your Gun. Oh, I guess that is, yeah, Buffalo Bill and everything. Yeah. I, I like, anything you could do, I could do better. You know that song? That's from that musical. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Beverage would not be a prosperous home for the Kelly family, and Red began drinking heavily. In 1864, the family moved to Avenel, Avenel near Seymour, uh, where they soon attracted the attention of the local police. The Kelly children obtained basic schooling, however they became very familiar with the bush that they lived in. In Avenel, Ned would risk his life to save another boy from drowning in Hughes Creek. The boy's family gave him a green sash as a kind of medal for this heroic act. Bread would be convicted again in relation to the theft of a calf, and was sentenced to a fine of 25 pounds, which... So my calculator that I have... It's, an, it's specifically for Australia, um, but the problem is it only goes back to 1901. Mm. So in 1901, 25 pounds would be the equivalent of 4,306 Australian dollars. Okay. Um, so it would probably be a little bit more than that, given the time. Yeah. Um, I think that is about 2,700 maybe Australian okay. do- uh, US dollars. Mm. So the other option was six months hard labor. Wow. The family obviously could not afford to pay this fine. However, there is no record of Red ever being transferred to Kilmore Jail, which was the closest jail. So Red would be fined again in December of 1866 for being drunk and disorderly, and he would die on the 27th of that month due to his alcoholism. Wow. The family then moved to Greta the following year to be near the Quinns and the Lloyds, their relatives by marriage. In 1868, Ned's uncle, Jim Kelly, who you may remember from our Beechworth Asylum episode, set fire to the rental home where the Kellys and some of the Lloyds were living. Thankfully, no one was killed. Jim would be sentenced to death, but this was later changed to 15 years of hard labor. During this time, Jim would work on on building the Beechworth Asylum, where he would later become a resident of the asylum he helped build. Mm. Um, He would stay there until his death. So hard labor was usually breaking up rocks, um, building buildings, putting down railway tracks, like mm. that kind of thing. Like anything that is getting you so tired that at the end of the day you just want to sleep. Yeah. Um, 
the goal was to progress the building of the country, but also like keep prisoners busy and off the streets okay. to like cause more havoc. Right. Um, next, the family would lease a small farm at 11 Mile Creek near Greta. This farm would prove unsuitable for farming, and Ellen supplemented the family income by offering accommodation to travelers and illegally selling alcohol. In 1869, 14-year-old Ned Kelly met Irish-born Harry Power, the alias of Henry Johnson, a transported convict who had turned to bush had turned to bush ranging after escaping from Melbourne's Pentridge prison. Prison. So Henry Power is another like really famous uh, mm. bush ranger. Okay. Um, the Kellys were part of Power's network of sympathizers, with a young Ned becoming his bush ranging protege by May of that year. Kelly and Power would attempt to steal horses from a squatter by the name of John Rowe as part of a larger plan to rob the Woods Point to Mansfield Gold Escort. So basically, um, like, you know, armoured trucks to, like, transport the, the money? Yeah. Basically, it's a carriage, but it would transport, like, gold that had been sold from uh, Woods Point, which mm-hmm. was, like, a gold... I wouldn't call it a town, but, like, mm-hmm. a gold mining area... Okay. ...to Mansfield, which was the bigger city. Okay. Um, however, this plan was abandoned after Rose shot at them, causing Kelly to temporarily break off his association with power. Wow. Rightfully so. Yeah. In October of that year, Ned had his first brush with the law over an altercation between him and a Chinese pig and fowl dealer named R. Fook. R. what? R, like A-H, Fook, F-O-O-K. He was a pig dealer? Yeah. So a lot of, um... Chinese people during the gold rush came oh, over to Australia. He was, yeah, so he was Chinese. Oh, okay. And so his uh, ethnicity was Chinese and his occupation was de- like selling pig and other birds like chickens. Oh, okay. Quail, ducks. I, th- I thought this was just an Australian guy who was just like, oh, Fook. Nope. Fug. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <Like> what? <laughs> According to Fook, he was robbed of 10 shillings by Ned as he passed by the Kelly family home. Ned had allegedly brandished a long stick and declared himself a bushranger during the robbery. However, Kelly gave evidence in court that Fook had abused his sister Annie over a request for a drink of water. When Ned had come to his sister's defense, Fook had beaten him with a stick. Annie and two family-related witnesses corroborated Ned's story and the charge was dismissed. Kelly and Power reconciled in March of 1870 and committed a a series of armed robberies throughout the month as police scrambled to find them and identify Power's young accomplice. Kelly was soon named as the culprit by the end of April, however, and was captured and sent to the Beechworth jail. Kelly would face court on three separate robbery charges, but the first two were dismissed as none of the victims could positively identify him. This was almost the case for the third charge, however, the victims were refused the chance to identify him. Basically, they were worried that the same thing was going to happen and it was going to get thrown out of jail. Oh, okay. Thrown out of court. Mm. Um, Superintendent Nicholas told the magistrate that Kelly fitted the description and asked that he be remanded for trial. Ned was sent to Melbourne to be held for the weekend before being transported to Kyneton to face court. No evidence was produced and Kelly was released after a month. This is a cause of disagreement for many historians. Some see it as evidence of police harassment, while others believe that the Kelly family intimidated the witnesses, making them reluctant to give evidence. Another factor... <laughs> you look very confused, but... 
It seems like they're demonizing the Kelly family. I wonder if it's like a West Memphis Three like type situation or if not. Because they're originally outlaws and they've been transported here and stuff and I just wonder like if there's something going on there. Yeah, and there's definitely um that is an argument that the Kelly family made mm. to the very end. That mm. the police just saw these ex convicts that, you know, were poor and doing what they could and just kind of went, Yeah, I've got a problem with you. Um, however, this family, I mean, okay, so they're Irish. They've come over from Ireland, a country and a people that are already, like, stepped on by Britain. Mm. They've been moved to another, like, transported to a country far, far away. The founder of their family was in prisoned for six months Mm. like it's mum and eight kids and you know it's that hot-headed Irish attitude and you know the the quick temper and the quick um like quick wit and everything and so it as we go on I while I do think that there was some corruption involved from the police I also think this family were essentially Australia's first like criminal like mob family. Oh, really? Like they were very. Um, I mean, it's not a title that this is coming from Kaylin. This is not a historical thing. Yeah. But they seem to uh, operate in a very similar way to like yeah. the mafia. Oh, okay. Like intimidating witnesses, like beating police, like lots yeah. of you know. So it's it's not black and white. It's okay. very like the whole story is very gray. Okay. Um, I've tried to put both. The police, the police's viewpoint, viewpoint, and the Kelly family viewpoint. Okay. To see like where similarities and then where it branches off and comes back. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, another factor in the lack of identification may have been that the witnesses had described Powers' young accomplice as half caste. Half caste is to mean a person of Aboriginal and European descent. Oh. So like okay. a halfy. Mud blood. <laughs> half blood. Yeah. So mum's a muggle. Yeah. Dad's a witch. Yeah. Mum's Aboriginal. (laughs) Dad's European. Yeah. Um, The police would claim that this was a result of Kelly not bathing, however. So because he rolled around in them, like he was just literally a kid, like maybe 16 at this point, 15, 16. He's not bathing every day. Mm. Like he's doing dirty work. He's like lying in the dirt to like wait for something to go by. Like, so he's got a bit of a... Right dirt sheen to him. <laughs> He's a dirt sheen. <laughs> Spongebob with the tanning on. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Power and Kelly's partnership would be short-lived. In June of 1870, while he was resting in a mountainside gunya, which is a bark shelter, that overlooked the property of James Quinn, who was Ned's maternal grandfather, Power was captured by a police search party. Rumours quickly spread after his arrest that Kelly had informed on him, a fact that Kelly would deny adamantly. The informant would turn out to be Kelly's uncle, Jack Lloyd. However, Power always believed that Kelly was responsible for the betrayal. In October 1870, Kelly was arrested for the assault of sending an indecent note to the childless wife of one Jeremiah McCormack, who had accused a friend of the Kellys for stealing his horse. The note was used to wrap two calves' testicles, which was then sent to this woman. This poor woman. Kelly passed the note on to one of his cousins, who then gave it to Mrs. McCormack. 
Jeremiah McCormack confronted Kelly over the note and Kelly punched him in the nose, knocking McCormack to the ground. Kelly was sentenced to three months hard labor on the charges of sending the calves parts, the note and assaulting McCormack. He would later be released from Beechworth jail five weeks early. However, three weeks later, a friend of his brother-in-law, Alex Gunn, arrived in town to visit. The man, Isaiah Wild, right? So like Wild was his nickname. Yeah. Was riding a chestnut mare, which he had borrowed <laughs> without telling the owner, who just so happened to be the postmaster of Mansfield. Oh my gosh. <laughs> According to Kelly, the mare went missing and Gunn lent Wright one of his own horses to continue on his journey with, promising that he would hold on to the mare for him until he returned. Soon after Wright departed, the mare was found. Kelly then took the mare to Wangaratta, where he stayed for four days. While he was riding back to Greta, Kelly was intercepted by Constable Edward Hall, who suspected that the horse was stolen. Yeah. I mean, how, like, how would you know? Yeah, know. How do, let me that, see your license and registration, please. <laughs> Which is why I'm like, at this point, like, it seems very heavily police like yeah i don't like the look of you you look like a poor young man that's yeah. a very nice horse that you're riding yeah. there's no way that it's yours i mean it wasn't he drew. but like good god <laughs> um the two men rode to the police station on the pretense of having to sign some papers however as kelly dismounted hall tried to grab him by the scruff of his neck and failed hall drew his revolver and tried to shoot kelly claiming that Kelly was resisting arrest, but it misfired three times. Good God. I mean, he grabbed him by the back of the neck. That is physical violence that we do not need. Kelly then overpowered Hall, straddling him like one would a horse and digging his spurs into the constable's thighs. I mean, he tried to shoot him, so... (laughs) (laughs) It took the constable the assistance of seven bystanders to subdue the 17-year-old Ned Kelly. Was this guy jacked? I'll show you some pictures. I think he wasn't particularly, but he's a young, like, you know, he's working on a farm. Oh, true, yeah. Aussie, Irish, Aussie bloke. like (laughs) Fighting kangaroos, yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Wrestling wombats. You said right, and then it took a second to hit. (laughs) I mean, yeah. We all ride kangaroos to school. Yeah. So it took the constable plus seven others to subdue 17-year-old Kelly after which Hall pistol-whipped him until his head became a, quote, mass of raw and bleeding flesh. Unnecessary. Kelly and Gunn were charged with the horse-stealing, and James Murdoch, a friend and neighbor of the Kellys, gave evidence that Ned had implied that the horse was stolen and that he'd tried to recruit him to steal more horses. However, it was later revealed that Kelly was still in the Beechworth jail when the horse had been stolen. So the charges were downgraded to, quote, feloniously receiving a horse, end quote. When you charge that off. So basically getting, stole, give, getting given a stolen horse. He didn't steal it, but someone gave it to him to hold on to, so guilty. Hate that. Both Kelly and Gunn were sentenced to three years imprisonment with hard labor, with Wright receiving 18 months for illegal use of a horse. Kelly served his sentence first at Beechworth Jail, then at Pentridge Prison. His good behavior earned him a transfer to the prison ship Sacramento on June 25th, 1873, which was anchored off Williamstown in Victoria. From there, he returned to Pentridge after several months before being released on the 2nd of February, 1874, six months early for good behavior. Upon his return to Greta, he learned that his brother Jim was in prison for horse theft. 
His mother also soon married an American named George King, who was only six years older than Ned. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me? Yeah. Disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, go mom. Ellen is clearly a babe. If you could get a dude six months younger than your third young oldest child. Disgusting. <laughs> Um, wanting to settle the score over the stolen mare, Kelly fought Wright in a bare-knuckle boxing match. Like, this is what I mean. Everyday Kelly behavior. Yep. <laughs> Kelly went 20 rounds with Wright and won. After the match, Wright became an ardent supporter of Kelly, so he beat the crap out of the guy, and then Wright was just like, yes, you are fantastic. I will support you for the rest of my life. I will go down for you. Like, One time, Regina George punched me in the face. <laughs> And I liked it. (laughs) She's so awesome. (laughs) After being released from prison, Ned went on to work at a sawmill and later for a builder. However, in early 1877, he joined his stepfather, who was really old enough to be his brother, in an organized horse-stealing operation, along with a number of men, including Isaiah Wright and Joe Byrne, with Kelly later claiming that the group stole 280 horses. When Jay was reading this, he's like, okay, so Grand Theft Horse. (laughs) (laughs) How was he holding 280 horses? So I think what happened was they would steal them and then sell them. Like, so um, it says earlier down that Kelly altered the brands on the horses and then sold them to other people. So I I pictured all at once stealing 280 horses. No, this was just over the course of time. That's how many That makes a little more sense. Yeah. (laughs) A number of this group also belonged to a gang of, quote, bush larrikins named the Greta Mob. As a side note, mob is a colloquial term identifying a group of Aboriginal people associated with a particular place or country. In the Aboriginal language, country here is used to talk about the land, waterways, or seas in which they are connected. Mm. Mob is used to represent your family group, clan group, or the wider Aboriginal community. I have no information if the Greta mob was made up of settlers and Aboriginal people or if they were using the term for its standard English definition, meaning an unruly crowd, or uh, if they were using the Aboriginal term mob for the meaning of mob, meaning that they were like the family, like the Greta family, um, or if they were using, or it, if it was a combination of yeah. any of the three. This group also included Ned's brothers Jim and Dan and his cousins Tom and Jack Lloyd. In August of 1877, Ned, his stepfather, and a number of accomplices had stolen 11 horses from a paddock owned by James Whitty, a wealthy local grazier, which is someone who fattens up cattle and sheep for market. Oh, okay. Um, Kelly altered the brands on the horses and sold six of them to William Baumgarten, a horse dealer in Barnawatha near the New South Wales border. Ned would be arrested again on the 18th of September, 1877, this time for riding over a footpath while drunk. The following day, he was involved in a brawl with the four police officers who were escorting him to court. One of the four officers was Constable Alex Fitzpatrick, a friend of Kelly's. The second was Constable Tom Lonigan, who reportedly grabbed Kelly by the testicles during the commotion. Kelly was found guilty of being drunk and disorderly, resisting arrest, and assaulting a police officer. However, he was fined and released. Allegedly, Kelly vowed that if ever he should shoot a man, it would be Lonigan. However, this is most likely fictitious. 
His friendship with Fitzpatrick would be rocky after this, with Kelly alleging that Fitzpatrick harassed his family after Kelly had knocked him down during the brawl. These cops out here doing too much. <laughs> Grabbed him by the testicles. Yeah, I don't know if that was, like... I don't know if they were just in a fight and he just tried to grab him and that's just the place that was closest to him. Like When I picture a brawl, I picture, like, in a cartoon where it's, like, smoke. Like, in The Sims. Oh, where, like, yeah. you jump in and there's, like, clouds and yeah. smoke and, like, I, symbols. I, and I just picture them, like, standing there, like, very casually and then he just, like, reaches out and grabs him really hard. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, like... Oh, okay. <laughs> he just grabs him. I don't think he did that. And I think that uh, if that was the case, Ned had every right to just bop him Knock on the face. Him, yeah. On the 26th of September, the horses missing from Witty's paddock, paddock were listed as stolen, and the police investigation into the case began. Baumgarten and his brother Gustav were arrested for selling stolen horses, which led the police to Ned Kelly. In March of 1878, a warrant was posted for his arrest in relation to what was now known as the Witty Larceny. A further warrant for the arrest of his younger brother Dan was issued on the 5th of April. April 11th, 1878 would be the beginning of the end for Ned Kelly. Constable Strachan, the officer in charge of the Greta police station, had heard that Ned Kelly was hiding out at a shearing shed in New South Wales. He was given leave to apprehend him. Constable Fitzpatrick... Ned's old friend, was sent to Greta for relief duty. However, Fitzpatrick had read in the Police Gazette that a warrant was out for Dan Kelly's arrest for horse stealing and asked his sergeant at Benella if he could call in at the Kelly farm on his way to Greta to arrest Dan. The sergeant reluctantly agreed, urging Fitzpatrick to be careful. The following is Constable Fitzpatrick's version of events. Upon finding Dan not at home, Fitzpatrick remained with the boy's mother Ellen for about an hour in conversation. Three children, the children of Ellen and George King. King had since disappeared, never to be seen again. What? No idea what happened to him. Uh, like, if he ran to, like, avoid the law or whatever. Yeah. No ideas. So these three children, children of Ellen and George, were also present in the home. Their conversation was interrupted when Fitzpatrick heard someone chopping wood, an act that requires you to have a license in Australia if it's not on your own property. So say you want to, like, chop down a tree... In your backyard, you can do it. Oh, okay. But if you want to just go to some random, like, public space or, like, someone else, you need a, a that's license. Fair. I think you still, to this day, need license to chop wood fair. down. That's yeah. fair. Um, though, I only remember this from, like, early 2000s, late 90s. It could be changed now. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> my, my grandparents used to have a wood-burning fire. Yeah. Anyway. After the conversation with Bricky Williamson, the neighbor who was chopping down the wood on his own selection, therefore making it legal, Fitzpatrick made his way back to the Kelly home. This was when he saw the teenage Dan Kelly and his brother-in-law Bill Skillian, again also written as Skilling, making their way towards the Kelly home on horseback. Fitzpatrick followed the men back and promptly arrested Dan at his home. Dan asked to be allowed to have dinner before leaving, and the constable consented, standing guard over his prisoner as he ate. Dang, what do you eat? <laughs> I would have loved to know. <laughs> Probably kangaroo and potatoes. Exactly. A little bit of drop berry. Stolen. <laughs> <laughs> we really do eat kangaroo though, right? You know that, right? Do you really? Yes. No, I don't believe you. It no, kind you've of... gotten me too many times. No, no, no. <laughs> True. We really do. I mean, it's not like a everyday thing. You can buy kangaroo meat at the grocery store. Is it good? I don't mind it. It kind of tastes like... Have you ever had lamb? Yeah. It kind of tastes like lamb, but more oh. gamey. Like, oh, okay. So, like, lamb-deer yeah. mix. I love deer. But I've never really had 
a lot of venison. So mm. I don't know if it tastes like venison. But it's just super gamey because they're very, very muscly animals constantly, yeah. like, <laughs> They're jacked. They're, they're very jacked. <laughs> they're jacked. <laughs> I don't know. Probably something. Or, like, you know, a pig that someone's died. Yeah. For dramatization purposes, it was kangaroo and potatoes. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Um, minutes later, Ned Kelly rushed through the front door, fired a shot at Fitzpatrick, and missed him. Ellen Kelly... <laughs> what? <laughs> Ellen Kelly then hit Fitzpatrick over the head with the fire shovel. A struggle ensued, and Kelly fired two more shots, wounding Fitzpatrick just above his left wrist. So, like, somewhere in the arm here. The Ooh. meaty area. <laughs> During the struggle, Skillian and Williamson entered the room, both armed with revolvers. Dan disarmed Fitzpatrick, turning his own revolver. So Fitzpatrick took the gun, pointed it at Fitzpatrick, turning his own revolver against him. Ned told Fitzpatrick if he'd known it was him, he wouldn't have fired upon him, and Fitzpatrick fainted. Once he had regained consciousness... (laughs) I know. What? Like, he was like, oh, shoot, mate, if I'd known it was you, I wouldn't have shot. And then, I guess... I mean, you've, you're in a lot of pain. Like, oh, this isn't super he's meaty. he's been shot. I got so it. So Fitzpatrick's been shot. Ned's like, oh, sorry, bro. If I'd known it was you, I would have done it. Yeah. Or it's very New Zealand. Sorry, mate. If I'd known it was you, I would have done it. <laughs> sorry, mate. <laughs> and then I guess the pain was too much. Fitzpatrick fainted. Oh. Once he regained consciousness, Kelly instructed him to remove the bullet from his own arm with a knife, and Ellen dressed the wound. Ned gave him a cover story and said that if Fitzpatrick told this story, he would reward him after the Baumgarten case was over. Ellen threatened him and said that if he revealed what had really happened, his life would be, quote, no good to him, end quote. So, like, Ellen holds her own. This is what what I mean, where it's, like, police brutality or crime family. (laughs) Like, either could be true. I kind of weirdly want to be a part of this crime family. I feel like this specific crime family would be, like, kind of okay to be a part. (laughs) listen we're not glorifying um criminals no absolutely not they sound like a lot of fun and it even gets better they sound like they're like (laughs) protect your family yes fast and the furious with kelly's yeah (laughs) yes that's pretty much right on the nail (laughs) eventually he was allowed to leave but after riding about a mile he realized that he was being followed by two horsemen However, after spurring his horse into a gallop, he managed to escape to the Winton Hotel, where he was assisted inside by the manager. After his wound was cleaned and rebandaged, and he had been given a brandy and water, the manager rode with him to Benella, where he reported the affair to his superior officer. Naturally, the Kelly family version of events are quite different, though there are a couple of different stories depending on which family member you're talking to. In a letter sent to the superintendent John Sadlier and parliamentarian Donald Cameron in December of 1878, Kelly said, quote, The witness which can prove Fitzpatrick's falsehood can be found by advertising, and if this is not done immediately, horrible disasters shall follow. Fitzpatrick shall be the cause of greater slaughter to the rising generation than St. Patrick was to the snakes and toads in Ireland. For had I robbed, plundered, ravished, and murdered everything I met, my character could not be painted blacker than it is at present. But thank God my conscience is as clear as the snow in Peru. Close quote. Is there snow in Peru? <laughs> like, um, I'm I, like, is, is this either like I'm super innocent or is it like a there's no snow in Peru so like you, you can't be clear? Um, or is it just 
he's not really super educated, like... Yeah, I... Okay, so I was right. I'm glad I was right. I love... I For those who don't know, I love Peru. It's my dream to go to Machu Picchu so bad. Um, and I would have sworn, yeah. So, like, they have mountains there okay. that are, like, snowy and stuff. And that's kind of what I thought. Because they, they've got the Andes Mountains. And kind of impressed that Ned Kelly knew of Peru. Ned Kelly sounds like the guy to know, honestly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kelly would later claim that at the time of the incident, he was 200 miles away from home. Which does tie into the fact that the guy who was originally stationed at the superintendent at Benella, which is where Fitzpatrick was traveling to on the way through, he was going to arrest Dan. He had left to New South Wales because he'd heard that that's where Kelly was. So that does line up with the start of the story. So as all of this is happening, is Jim just sitting in Beechworth, just like chilling? Yeah. Uh, I don't remember when he died. But like, probably. This is crazy. You know, like, yeah, you're going to meet my nephew. Like, his nephew, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. True. At some point, I don't know if he was, like, insane at this point. Oh. Or if he was still at the jail going to the asylum to build it or not. I don't know. That's crazy to I me. I can't remember from our episode. It was a while ago. <laughs> the Kelly family has been... I, I need... There are a lot of people from Ireland named Kelly because it's a popular, like, last name in Ireland. True. But, like... I want to meet the descendants of these people. Does it just, like, carry over? Is this, like, a forever, like, <laughs> thing? <laughs> I don't know. I, we are not related to Kellys. Yeah. We are related to Irish people, but mm. not Kellys. Mm. We are related to Quigleys. Ah. Um, so he would claim that he was 200 miles away from home. According to him, his mother asked Fitzpatrick if he had a warrant for Dan's arrest, and the officer replied that he only had a telegram. His mother replied that Dan need not go then. Fitzpatrick then pulled out a revolver saying, quote, I will blow your brains out if you interfere, end quote. Good God. Ellen d- then said, quote, you would not be so handy with that pop gun of yours if Ned was here, end quote. Dan apparently then tried to trick Fitzpatrick by saying, quote, there is Ned coming along by the side of the house, end quote. While he was pretending to look out of the window for Ned, Dan was able to corner Fitzpatrick and take his revolver before releasing Fitzpatrick unharmed. Ned claimed that if Fitzpatrick had suffered any wounds, they were most likely self-inflicted. He also claimed that Skillian and Williamson were not present. This is Looney Tunes' character with, like, the morality <laughs> of the Fast and the Furious gang with just, like, Wild Wild West, like, gun pop and shoot, like, around. Like, that is what this is. Like, just Looney Tunes, like, <laughs> oh, look over there. Oh, what is that? Oh, here's Ned now boinks with like big club (laughs) yeah like what is happening right now so ned's sister kate who was 14 at the time of the incident later said in 1879 that kelly had shot fitzpatrick after the constable had made a sexual advance to her however after kelly was captured he denied that fitzpatrick tried to take liberties with his younger sister saying quote no, that is a foolish story. If he or any other policeman tried to take liberties with my sister, Victoria would not hold him. So they were obviously protective of, they're rightfully protective of family. <laughs> kind of hot. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> my mom was like, I was telling her about it, and she's like, you know, tell the story, but don't be like too one sided. I'm like, what? We try not to be. Right. You know, we try to hear all sides of the story. Mm. But I mean, I kind of see both. Like, yeah, uh, he. he Spoiler alert, he murders police officers. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, like, he did kill people and hold people up and steal, 
But also, I kind of get where the Kellys were coming from. Like, yeah. they were suppressed in both countries, yeah. both in Ireland by the British and here by the, the British slash Australian police, because we were in our own country at this point. So, like, I kind of, you know, family looks after family. I, yeah, they don't yeah. have to kill people, but True. they're just looking after themselves. Yeah. So, sorry, Mom. <laughs> but it, it does sound fun. <laughs> In 1929, a journalist named J.J. Kennelly shared a third version of the incident based on interviews with the remaining Kelly brother, Jim, and Kelly cousin and gang purveyor, Tom Lloyd. In this version, Fitzpatrick was drunk when he arrived at the Kelly home and pulled Kate onto his knee while sitting in front of the fireplace. This provoked Dan to throw him to the floor. In the struggle, the constable drew his revolver and Ned appeared and the two Kelly brothers disarmed Fitzpatrick. However, in the struggle, Fitzpatrick struck his wrist against the projecting part of the door lock, which he would claim to be a gunshot wound. However, three police officers later gave sworn evidence that Ned, after his capture, had admitted that he had shot Fitzpatrick. In 1881, Ricky Williamson, who was seeking remission for his sentence in relation to the incident, claimed that Kelly had shot Fitzpatrick after the constable had drawn his revolver. It had also been argued that Joe Byrne, Kelly's friend and gang member later gang member was at the kelly home that day not bill skillion whichever story is the correct one williamson skillion and ellen kelly were arrested and charged with aiding and abetting attempted murder while ned and dan were nowhere to be found they appeared before judge redmond barry on the 9th of october 1878 this is the neighbor the brother and the mother brother-in-law oh, okay. and the mother mm-hmm. Uh, evidence was given by Fitzpatrick's doctor, who treated his wound, and claimed that the constable was, quote, certainly not drunk, end quote, and that his wounds were consistent with Fitzpatrick's statement of events. The defense declined to call on Kate and Ned's 12-year-old sister, Grace, despite the fact that they were witnesses. Instead, they called a friend of the Kellys and Joe Ryan, a relative, hoping that they would say that Skillian wasn't present, a fact that would cast doubt on Fitzpatrick's entire evidence. Ryan revealed that Ned was in Greta that afternoon, which was damaging to the defense. Ellen Kelly, Skillian, and Williamson were convicted as accessories to the attempted murder of Alex Fitzpatrick, with the two men receiving sentences of six years hard labor and Ellen three years of hard labor. Even people who had no cause to be Kelly sympathizers found Ellen's sentence harsh, especially as she was nursing a newborn baby at the oh time. Oh my gosh. Alfred Wyatt, a police magistrate in Benella, later told the Royal Commission, quote, I thought the sentence upon that old woman, side note, she was 46, hardly old, <laughs> Mrs. Kelly was a severe one, end quote. After the Fitzpatrick incident, Ned and Dan Kelly, along with Joe Byrne, went into hiding. They were soon joined by Steve Hart, a friend of Dan's. Uh, the Kelly gang were born. Mm. Um... They based themselves at the Bullock Creek in Wombat in the Wombat Ranges, where they made money sluicing gold and distilling whiskey. While sympathizers, including Ned's cousin Tom Lloyd, supplied them with provisions and information. However, the police were also receiving information and soon found out that the Kelly gang were in the Wombat Ranges at the head of the King River, and on the 25th of October 1878, two mounted police parties were dispatched to search for them. One of the parties consisting of Sergeant Michael Kennedy and Constables Michael Scanlon, Thomas Lonigan, and Thomas McIntyre camped overnight in the abandoned mining site at Stringybark Creek. Thomas Lonigan, you'll remember, was the testicle, testicle grabber. Yeah. <laughs> um, he will forever be known as that. <laughs> 
The officers were unaware that only one and a half miles separated them from the Kelly gang's hideout and that Ned had observed their tracks. Oh. The following morning, Kennedy and Scanlon went scouting while McIntyre and Lonigan remained at camp. At about 5 p.m., the Kelly gang ambushed the two officers and ordered them to, quote, bail up and raise their arms, end quote. According to McIntyre, each member of the gang was armed with a rifle, but according to Ned, they only had two guns. As McIntyre was unarmed, he raised his arms. However, Lunigan made a motion to draw his revolver and ran to take cover behind a tree a few yards away. Ned immediately shot Lonigan, killing him instantly. Again, Ned's story varies. According to him, Lonigan had ducked behind a fallen tree and Ned shot him as he raised his head to fire. McIntyre was questioned by the Kelly gang and they armed themselves with his shotgun and revolvers. However, Kennedy and Scanlon returned about half an hour later and the gang hid themselves. McIntyre claimed that as he walked towards Kennedy, the gang ordered the police to surrender. Kennedy tried to unclip his gun holster, but shots were fired by the gang. Kennedy was advised against shooting by McIntyre, saying that they were surrounded. Scanlon attempted to dismount and unsling his rifle, but he didn't even have time to shoot, McIntyre claimed. Ned claimed that Scanlon fired, but it missed. As Scanlon went to fire again, Ned shot him. Scanlon died shortly after. Kennedy dismounted and, according to McIntyre, tried to surrender without firing a shot, but the gang continued firing at him. Kelly claimed that Kennedy hid behind a tree and started firing. Kennedy retreated into the surrounding bush, but Ned and Dan pursued him for almost a mile. The three men exchanged gunfire before Ned shot him in the right side. According to Ned, however, Kennedy turned around to face him and Ned shot him in the chest with his shotgun, not realising that Kennedy had dropped his revolver and was turning to surrender. During the gunfire, McIntyre, still unarmed, mounted Kennedy's horse and was able to escape. By the following day, he had reached Mansfield Police Station and a search party quickly found the bodies of Lonigan and Scanlon. Kennedy's body was found two days later. The bodies had been looted of watches, rings and other personal items. Postmortem ex- exams would show that Lonigan had been shot three times through the arm, the leg and the right eye, which was the killing shot. Scanlon had four bullet wounds and Kennedy had at least two. One, a shotgun wound through the chest fired from very close range. Initial accounts of the shootout were given by McIntyre at Mansfield on the 27th of October and again at the inquest into the deaths of Lonigan and Scanlon two days later. Kelly's initial accounts were given in his Cameron letter of December 1878 and the Gerildery letter on February 1879. It's worth noting that later accounts of both McIntyre and Kelly varied in their details. The credibility of some aspects in both versions of events have been questioned by many historians. In his famous Gerildery letter, Ned claimed that he had been informed that a number of police officers had boasted that they would shoot him without giving him a chance to surrender. He also claimed that the police party carried weapons and ammunition that gave the impression that they were there to kill him rather than arrest him. These circumstances, he claimed, and the failure of the police to surrender when ordered to, justified him killing them in self-defense. However, McIntyre stated that he told Kelly that the intention of the police party was to arrest him and that they were not excessively armed in the circumstances. He claimed that it was the Kelly gang who confronted the police with their weapons drawn and that they did not give the police a realistic chance to surrender. News of the police murders led to a widespread fear of the Kelly gang. So, again... The calculator that I used to work out the exchange rate from back then to today 
has a limit on how early you can go, which is 1901. Mm -hmm. So these conversions aren't exactly accurate. They would probably be a little bit more, but just for a rough kind of to give you an impression of what kind of money this was. Mm -hmm. So the government of Victoria announced a reward of 800 pounds, which in 1901 would be approximately 137,814 Australian dollars or 95,550 US dollars. Good Lord. Um, it was to be 200 pounds per head. So 200 pounds for each four members. So 200 pounds was around 34,453 Australian, 23,875 US. Mm. This was on the 28th of October, 1878. This was soon increased to 2,000 pounds or 344,536 Australian, or 238,763 US. Wow. Three days later, the Victorian Parliament passed the Felons Apprehension Act, which came into effect the following day. This act was based on the New South Wales Felons Apprehension Act of 1865, which had been enacted in response to the bushrangers Dan Morgan and Ben Hall. This would be reenacted in New South Wales in response to the Kelly Gang as the Felons Apprehension Act of 1879. On the 4th of November 1878, notices were published throughout the colony that the gang had until the 12th of November to surrender themselves. The 12th came and went, and on the 15th of November, the four members of the Kelly Gang were declared outlaws. This meant that members of the gang could be killed without challenge by anyone finding them armed or had reasonable suspicion that they were armed. What? This act also penalised anyone who gave, quote, any aid, shelter, or sustenance, end quote, to the outlaws, withheld information, or gave false information on the gang to the authorities. Mm. Punishment for any such thing would be, quote, imprisonment with or without hard labour for such period not exceeding 15 years. Wow. So you literally see this rando on the side of the road and give them a piece of bread technically you could be in prison for up to 15 years with or without hard labor what if you didn't know who he was ridiculous yeah but they did have a lot of like they had a network of they called them sympathizers but like family friends who would <laughs> they would later plant sympathizers at their hostage situations to like help keep the other hostages come like, oh look how nice they're being to us yeah <laughs> so like good god excessive but they kind of put it out there that it was you know how like people like criminals and like write to them in jail and being like oh he didn't mean to kill all those people he's really so sweet and yes. it kind of was like that mm. but yeah ridiculous I never understand that. Or, like, mm. people who fall in love with, like, serial killers. Like, Ted Bundy was a huge one. And I'm like, yeah. everyone's like, he's so handsome. And I'm like, have you he's looked creepy. at him? He's very <laughs> creepy looking. He's not handsome in any manner. Mm -mm. He has all his Charismatic, hair. Charismatic, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But. He has all his hair. That's what makes him attractive. <laughs> so hard to find these days. So, so hard. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> the gang attempted to flee across the flooded Murray River into New South Wales, but were unsuccessful and had to return to their base in northeastern Victoria. On several occasions, they narrowly avoided the police and were relying on the support of the extended Kelly family, criminal associates, and other sympathizers. They were in need of money, so the Kelly gang planned to rob the bank in the small town of Euroa. After scouting the town on the 8th of December, 1878, 
Byrne reported that there would be a funeral and a sitting of the licensing court the following Tuesday afternoon, and that many in the town would be attending. Then, the next day, the gang held up the Young Husband Pastoral substation at Faithful's Creek, 3.5 miles from Euroa. The 14 male employees and passers-by were taken hostage and held overnight in the brick outbuilding near the homestead, while the female hostages were held in the homestead. A passing hawker, who was one of the hostages, supplied the gang with new, respectable clothes. It is most likely that he and a number of the hostages were sympathizers of the gang and had knowledge of the raid. Oh my god. Because I guess... See, in a way, I kind of admire the good thinking yeah because i mean it's a way to have your people who sympathize with you there Mm. to like help manage the situation right and also bring in things that you would need Mm. but you're holding them hostage Mm. so they can't then be punished by being like oh well they were friends of the gang right like they were just oh hello random passerby who happens to have nice clothes that i could wear into town thank you (laughs) really it's like cousin jim yeah yeah (laughs) He's back from Beechworth. <laughs> That's Uncle Jim. This Uncle is Jim. different. This is Jim's son. Oh. Uh, uh, Should I? <laughs> just Jim was the first name that popped Jim, into Jim, my Jim. head. <laughs> the next day, Tuesday, Dan guarded the hostages while Ned, Joe Byrne, and Steve Hart rode out and cut the telegraph wires connecting Euroa to the outside world. While they were out, they encountered a hunting party and some railway workers, who they held up and took back to Faithful's Creek as hostages. The Kellys and Hart then left Byrne to guard the prisoners and rode into Euroa. The three gang members knocked at the doors of the closed National Bank of Australasia just after 4pm and gained entry from the front and back. With their revolvers drawn, they held up both the bank and the bank manager's living quarters. £2,260, or roughly 389325 Australian, or 269802 US American, dollars worth of gold and cash were emptied from the safes and cashier's drawers, including a small number of documents and securities. They literally took what they were wanted for. Yeah, pretty much. crazy. <laughs> Almost. Like, yeah. a little bit more than what they were. They're like, right. this is for family, and then we'll keep this little profit yeah. here. Yeah. The 14 members of the bank manager's household and staff were taken back to the Faithful's Creek homestead as hostages. This next bit's where it gets a little weird and crazy. Oh, God. To entertain the now 37 people held hostage... The gang performed some trick-riding stunts before leaving at about 8.30pm, warning their captives to remain where they were for three hours or there would be reprisals. Trick-riding? We have, like, so, like, standing on their horse while they're riding, like... Oh, I thought you meant writing. No, riding. (laughs) So, like, tricks on horseback, basically. They were like, hey, guys, we took (laughs) you. Watch this. Look at this cool trick. Okay, bye. (laughs) Hey, mom, 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 look at me, look at me. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, like this. This whole story is just, what is happening? (laughs) And I was worried about it being too dry. (laughs) No, it's not dry. It's like, what? Oh, man. Some of this does not sound real. Like, it sounds like a Looney Tune show. (laughs) But family. But Australia. (laughs) But Australian family. (laughs) A number of newspapers would comment on the efficiency of the raid's execution and even compared it with the inefficiency of the police, who had failed to capture the gang in the six weeks since the Stringybark police killings. 
Hello. So even the newspapers are like, look at how inefficient the Australian police are. <laughs> Get your stuff Versus together. these bush rangers who got in and out. They they yeah. fed the captives. They entertained them. And They're then so they were accurate. gone. Efficient. Great. <laughs> 10 out of 10. Would recommend this service again. <laughs> they give a Yelp review. <laughs> I would definitely recommend being held up by the Kelly gang. Yeah. Again. Yeah. It was an enjoyable experience. Yeah. The food was a little bland, but, but the gimmick the show was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Several of the hostages claimed that the gang had behaved courteously and without violence during the raid. Other hostages, however, stated that on several occasions, Ned and the other members of the gang had become enraged and had cocked their revolvers and pointed them at the hostages, threatening to shoot them. They allegedly also threatened to burn buildings containing hostages if there was any resistance. Dang. Can't please everyone, I guess. I guess. During their time at the Faithful's Creek homestead, Byrne wrote out two copies of a letter that had been dictated by Kelly. So I don't think Kelly could write, because Byrne was always his, like... Secretary. Yeah, basically. Both notes that he's famous for, Byrne wrote it, Kelly dictated it. I think Kelly signed the Cameron letter. Mm. So it's like the only known piece of Ned Kelly's writing that they have. On the 14th of December, the copies were posted to Donald Cameron, a Victorian parliamentarian who Kelly wrongly thought was sympathetic to the gang, and John Sadlier, the police superintendent at Benella. The letter would become known as the Cameron letter. Kelly made claims of police corruption and harassment of his family in the letter, and also gave his version of the Fitzpatrick incident, the stringy buck killings, and other events. Despite Kelly's expectations of Cameron to read the letter out in Parliament, the government refused to make it public. However, the newspapers published summaries of its contents with commentary. Much of this would later be repeated in the longer Gerildery letter, a 56-page, 7,391-word letter sent in February of 1879. Good God. Yeah. (sighs) Man could wax poetic for for ages. (laughs) On the 2nd of January, 1879, warrants for the arrest of presumed Kelly sympathizers were obtained by the police. In the following days, 30 men were arrested and 23 were remanded in custody. Among the leading Kelly sympathizers who were held were Tom Lloyd Jr., so a cousin, Jimmy Quinn, Kelly's maternal grandfather, Isaiah Wright, the guy who stole the horse and then got beat it up and loved Kelly, <laughs> and Joe Ryan, who was a relative. I don't know what connection it was. Mm. He gave evidence in the trial for the Fitzpatrick incident. Yeah. Um, over a third of these were released within seven weeks due to lack of evidence. A core of nine sympathizers, however, had their remand renewed on a weekly basis for almost three months, despite failure to produce evidence for a committal hearing. So basically they were like, oh, crap, it's going to run out soon. Okay, quick, renew it. But we don't have any evidence, sir. Just renew it. Oh, my God. (laughs) If we hold them for long enough, maybe Kelly Gang will come and be like, hey, release our family. Right. So they were held for three months? Yeah. That's so like... Almost three months. So the Kelly family? like, And then they were hoping that the Kelly Gang would come and get the family out? Yeah, so basically they held their grandpa, a couple of relatives, a really good friend, and other people. None. Because they were sympathizers of Kelly Gang, but there was no evidence showing that they were sympathizers. Did Okay, did they come and take them or like rescue them? Police claimed that their informants <laughs> were scared to give sworn evidence for fear of reprisals. So basically 
they couldn't get any evidence because the informants who were in the like sympathizing network but informing to the police were too scared to like go against the family to like prosecute these sympathizers because they were like the the top of the tier sympathizers mm-hmm. basically over three months later, on the 22nd of April, police magistrate Foster refused persecution requests to continue remands and discharge the remaining 11 detainees. The police command were annoyed by these decisions, but it was clear by then that the tactic of holding sympathizers on continuous remand had not stopped the Kelly gang or brought them to release them. Mm. It has been argued that this practice of holding key Kelly sympathizers without trial for months turned public sympathy away from the police. I, I, I would agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Following the Euroa, Euroa, see, I can say Euroa and I can say raid, but Euroa raid, <laughs> 58 police were transferred to northeastern Victoria, making the total of 217 police in the district. Around 50 soldiers were deployed to guard banks in the region, region and the reward for Kelly's capture was just Kelly's capture was increased to 1,000 pounds. The equivalent that's not right <laughs> is that right the equivalent of 172,268 australian but that seems not enough but anyway yeah we'll go with it like not enough but sure um or 119,000 and some change yes yeah. the kelly gang distributed most of the proceeds from the raid to family friends and associates who had given them assistance and the outlaws were once more in need of funds so this is where kind of the whole oh, he was Australia's Robin Hood came into play. Mm. So a lot of the time, and I mean, it was family and friends that he would, at least up until now, Mm. it was family and friends that he was giving the funds to, but he was giving it to the poor of Victoria. Right. So this need of funds led to the plan to rob the bank at Gerildery, a town of 500 residents about 40 miles across the border in New South Wales. In the days before the raid, a number of sympathizers moved into town to provide information and undercover support for oh the game. Oh my god. <laughs> this is why the sympathizers are punishable by this act that they made. They're sending out scouts. <laughs> yeah. On February 7th, and this is why I also think that it's it's a crime syndicate. Like yeah. it's a crime family. Yeah. Um they're just like doing little things to support like the big four players. Right. Yeah. On February 7th, 1879, the Kelly gang crossed the Murray River between Mawala and Tocumwell. <laughs> these are the two that I was like, I've pronounced these for ages. I know how to pronounce them. Yeah. Mommy, how do I pronounce these? <laughs> <laughs> Mawala and Tocumwell. And camped overnight in the thick forest. The next day, they visited Davidson's Inn, about two miles from Gerildery, where they drank and chatted with patrons and staff, learning more about the town and the police presence there. After midnight on the 9th, the gang went to Gerildery Police Barracks, about half a mile from the town centre, on the pretext of alerting the police to a fictitious brawl at Davidson's Inn. However, after confirming that there were only two policemen there, Senior Constable George Devine and Probationary Constable Henry Richards, the gang drew their revolvers and locked up the policemen. The two men were secured in the lockup near the main building and the gang spent the night in the residential quarters of the police station mm. where they held Devine's wife and young children hostage. Right. Don't love that. Um, it was just funny how they captured them like, bad police, you yeah, go here. Here you go. We're going to lock you in here. How do you like that? Yeah. Um, 
Again, we do not uh, condone locking people up. No, no, no. no. Uh, even if they are corrupt, it is you are not the, the authorities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Word it. Basically, they're bad, but it's funny. Yeah. Um, most of Sunday morning was spent preparing for the bank robbery, while many of the town's population were attending church. In the afternoon, Byrne and Hart, dressed in police uniforms, took the disarmed Constable Richards with them into town so they could familiarise themselves with its layout. Richards was made to introduce the strangers as police reinforcements sent to search for the Kelly gang. Meanwhile, um, the three then returned to the police barracks and the gang finalised plans for the following day's raid. On the 10th of February at 10am, Ned and Byrne dressed in police uniforms and the four outlaws took Richards with them into town. Devine had been left in the police lockup and the gang had warned Mrs. Devine that if she tried to leave the barracks, they would burn it down with her and the children inside. The gang held up the Royal Mail Hotel next door to the Bank of New South Wales, taking the hotel staff and patrons hostage, taking anyone walking into the hotel as hostage as the raid went on. It is most certain that some of those held were sympathisers planted by the outlaws. Ned and Joe Byrne entered the bank from the rear, leaving Dan and Steve Hart in control of the hotel. The gang took £2,141 in cash, as well as jewellery and other valuables. Mm. Ned also took deeds, mortgages and securities from the safe, which he later had burned because, quote, the bloody banks are crushing the life's blood out of the poor struggling man, end quote. Still, to this day, they are doing that. (laughs) (laughs) The bank staff and several patrons were then taken prisoner and moved to the parlour of the hotel. The bank staff and several patrons were then taken prisoner and moved to the parlour of the hotel. Byrne then held up the post office and destroyed the Morse key and insulator. Several of the prisoners were then ordered to take axes and bring down the telegraph poles and wires. Once the destruction was over, Ned went with two hostages to the newspaper owner's home and asked for copies of his geraldry letter to be printed. However, the newspaper owner had earlier escaped capture at the bank and fled the town. Ned then made a detour to steal a locally famous racehorse before returning to the hotel to deliver a speech to the hostages, outlining his grievances about the police and the justice system. The hostages were then free to go. However, he took Richards and the two post office workers who could operate the telegraph with him to the police barracks. When they returned to the barracks, the gang secured the two policemen and post office workers in the lockup and prepared to leave with the proceeds from the bank robbery, the police horses and weapons. Mrs. Devine was threatened not to release the prisoners before 7.30pm and Dan and Joe then rode out of Geraldry. Ned and Steve rode back to town, and Ned stayed a short while drinking at the Albion Hotel with the strangers who had recently entered the town and were soon to leave, so he sympathizes. While he was there, the local parson, John B. Gribble, convinced Ned to leave the racehorse he had taken as it belonged to a, quote, young lady, end quote. The Kelly gang were not seen again by the police for seven months. Excerpts of the Geraldry letter were published through the press due to political suppression, So the entire letter wasn't published, just like bits and pieces. Mm. The entire letter was rediscovered and published in its entirety in 1930. Historian Alex McDermott claims that through this letter, quote, Kelly inserts himself into history on his own terms with his own voice. We hear the living speaker in a way that no other document in our history achieves, end quote. 
It has been interpreted as a proto-Republican manifesto. For others, it is a murderous, maniacal rant uh, or a remarkable insight into Kelly's grandiosity. Mm. Noted for its unorthodox grammar, the letter reaches, quote, delirious poetics, end quote. (laughs) Kelly's language being hyperbolic, elusive, hallucinatory, full of striking metaphors and images. His invective and sense of humour are also present. In one well-known passage, he calls the Victorian police, quote, a parcel of big, ugly, fat-necked, wombat-headed, big-bellied, magpie-legged, narrow-hipped, splaw-footed sons of Irish bailiffs or English landlords, end quote. I've never heard one beautiful writing. (laughs) Such beauty. Just, you know, chef's kiss. (laughs) Good God. In response to the Derildery raid, the New South Wales government and several banks collectively issued £4,000 for the gang's capture, dead or alive. This would be the equivalent of roughly 689072 Australian dollars or 476906 US dollars. This would be the largest reward offered in the colony since the £5,000 reward was placed on the heads of the outlawed Clark brothers in 1867. The Victorian government matched the offer for the Kelly gang, bringing the total amount of reward to £8,000, around US dollars or 953812 American dollars. Good God. They're like, we obviously can't do our job, so, like, somebody, please, anybody, like, just get them here. Yes. Like, <laughs> good Lord. This is Bushranging's largest ever reward. That's wild. Yep. Could you wild. imagine, like, you just catch this person, it's like, here's a million dollars. Oh, thank you. That's, I mean, they're, I mean, they're bounty hunters out there. I was saying to Jay yeah. earlier, I was like, Honey, we need to go into bush ranging. He's like, why? I'm like, because they're making bank. And he goes, okay, what's the difference between a bush ranger and a common criminal? And I was like, they rode horses and lived in the bush. And he's like, oh, so they were common criminals? And I was like, no. They were like folk heroes. And he's like, yeah, honey, you married a person too lawful for that. I was like, darn it. <laughs> Not yeah. that I would ever steal money from a bank. I'm just, you know, no. It's, it's uh, funny to picture Jay like going like, Pop, 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 on, a, <laughs> on a horse like with his like little guns like <laughs> if you guys knew jay no, he is like like you know he's, he's my knight in shining armor but like he's just super lawful yeah like lawful good if he's you play dandy talks with a calm voice like you know you follow the law even if it's just like yeah like you just always follow the law yeah drives me nuts because I'm very chaotic. We have to Photoshop Jay in a cowboy hat on a horse with like <laughs> little gu- like pistols. Like yeah, like uh Samity Sam kind of like <laughs> getting tin type. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on our Instagram. <laughs> Photoshop. Do your Photoshop. work. No, I will. <laughs> In March 1879, six Queensland native police troopers and a senior constable were deployed to Benalla to join the hunt for the Kelly gang. So native police troopers were Aboriginal police who were usually under the command of at least one white officer. This group was under the command of sub-inspector Stanhope O'Connor. So basically, like, tracking and, like, being in the bush where, obviously, native people 
mm-hmm. were used to being. They were mm-hmm. very good trackers. They were very good hunters. However, Okana and his troops, see, this is the, 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 it's not just, oh, let's give native people jobs and pay them and do fair things like mm-hmm. tracking bushrangers who are right. stealing things. Um, O'Connor and his troops were in active service in the Cooktown region conducting punitive expeditions against Aboriginal communities and had recently massacred 30 people near Cape Bedford. Oh, that's awful. So they were using native policemen to murder their own people. Good God. Horrific. There's a movie. I can't remember what it's called. I watched it at Jay's parents' house. um, That's basically this white guy i think he was american but he was in australia for some reason was like beaten and left for dead and then found by these aboriginal people and nursed back to health um and like learned how to like hunt and trap and like do all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. and then basically used that to get back at the people who beat him up but were also hurting the aboriginal people and in that movie something similar like this happens like they have other native troopers, policemen, hunting the Aboriginal people. Wow. And there's, like, this horrible massacre. It's awful. Yeah. But it was pretty common. That's... I hate hearing that. I mean, it was common here, too, but, like, I hate hearing that. Yeah. Kelly feared the tracking ability of the Aboriginal troopers. However, the local officers doubted their value and didn't deploy them to their best abilities. The Aboriginal troopers were withdrawn on June 25th, 1880. However, the following day, Aaron Sherritt, a police informant who was friends with the Kelly gang, was killed. Literally the the following day. Mm. And the troopers were re-engaged. Sherritt was a lifelong friend of Joe Byrne and was a former member of the Greta mob. However, he began to accept police payment for providing information on the Bushrangers' activities. It is worth noting that Sherritt likely also gave the police false information in order to protect Byrne. Detective Michael Ward was particularly skeptical of Sherritt's value as an informer. When, po- when Bryce's mother discovered Sherritt with a police surveillance party in March of 1879, she publicly denounced him as a spy. In the months that followed, Byrne and Ned sent Sherritt messages stating that the Lloyds and Quinns wanted him dead, but it would be better if he joined the outlaws. Sherritt continued his relationship with the police, however, and Byrne warned Sherritt's mother that the Kelly gang were going to kill him. On June 26, 1880, Dan Kelly and Joe Byrne rode into the Woolshed Valley. They kidnapped Anton Wick, a neighbour of Sherritt, and forced him to come with them to Sherritt's hut. The occupants of the hut were Sherritt, his pregnant wife Ellen, Ellen's mother, Mrs. Barry, along with four policemen who had been stationed to guard Sherritt and spy on Mrs. Byrne's home. At about 6.30pm, Dan went to the front door of the hut and Byrne forced Wick to knock on the back door and call out for Sherritt. When Sherritt answered the door, Byrne shot him in the throat and chest with a shotgun, killing him instantly. Byrne then entered the hut and let Dan in, while the four policemen hid in the bedroom. Byrne demanded that the police come out. They didn't respond, so he fired into the bedroom. Ellen was then sent into the bedroom to bring the police out, but they held her in the room. The outlaws took Mrs. Barry with them to collect kindling, loudly threatening to burn those inside alive. Mrs. Barry was then sent back inside and the police detained her in the bedroom. The outlaws were unable to set fire to the building and stayed outside yelling threats at the occupants, but after two hours they released Wick and rode away. 
The police refused to leave the hut until the following morning, fearful that the bushrangers would still be waiting outside for them. The news of Sherratt's death reached Hare in Benalla at 2.30pm on Sunday, June 27th. The gang estimated that the policemen would relay the news of his murder to Beechworth by early Sunday morning, and that a special police train would be sent up from Melbourne. They also surmised that the train would collect reinforcements in Vanella before continuing through Glen Rowan, a small town in the Warby Ranges. This is where the gang planned to derail the train and shoot dead any survivors, before riding to unpoliced Vanella, where they would rob the banks, set fire to the courthouse, blow up the police barracks, release anyone imprisoned in the jail, and, quote, generally play havoc with the entire town, end quote, before returning to the bush. While Byrne and Dan were in the Woolshed Valley, Ned and Hart tried and failed to damage the track at Glen Rowan, so they forced two local plate layers and some labourers camped nearby to finish the job. A sharp curb in the line was selected by the outlaws, which ran across a deep ravine, and told their captives that they were going to, quote, send the train and its occupants to hell, end quote. As Joe and Dan arrived at Glen Rowan, the gang had taken over the railway station, the station master's home, and Ann Jones Glen Rowan Inn. The gang used the hotel to hold the workers, passers-by, and other male prisoners, while most of the women and children that were taken prisoner were held at the station master's home. McDonald's Railway Hotel, the other hotel in town on the other side of the tracks, was used to stable the gang's stolen horses, one of which carried a tin of blasting powder and fuses. The pack horses also carried suits of bullet-repelling armour that weighed about 44 kilos or 97 pounds each. Dang. Um, Each one also contained a helmet. This armour had been designed to provide protection for the outlaws as they stood on top of the embankment, firing down on any survivors of the train wreck. There was no leg armour as it would hinder their movement and wasn't necessary given the angle of return fire. Almost a month prior, police informant Daniel Kennedy had reported that the Kelly gang had successfully made bulletproof armour out of agricultural equipment and were planning another raid. Good God. However, on the 25th of June, Kennedy personally reported this information to Assistant Commissioner Francis Hare. Hare dismissed this intelligence as preposterous and sacked Kennedy. By Sunday afternoon, the train had still not arrived, so the outlaws had moved most of the women and children to the Glen Rowan Inn. As the hours passed without any sight of the train, the gang plied the now 62 hostages, including planted sympathisers, to control the situation uh, with drink and organised music, singing, dancing and games. One hostage later testified, Ned did not treat us badly, not at all. However, another young hostage was apparently threatened, keeping him, quote, in a state of extreme terror for about half an hour, end quote. Late into the afternoon and evening of Sunday, Ned allowed 21 of the hostages who he considered trustworthy to leave. At about 10pm, he and Joe captured Glen Rowan's lone constable, Hugh Bracken, with the assistance of Thomas Kernow, a local schoolmaster and hostage who sought to gain the Kelly gang's trust to thwart their plans. Believing that Kernow was a sympathiser, he and his wife were allowed to return to their home nearby, but they were warned to, quote, go quietly to bed and not dream too loud. End quote. The train Ned had been expecting only left Benella after 2am on Monday. It carried seven regular troopers under Superintendent Hare, five Queensland Aboriginal troopers under Sub-Inspector O'Connor, four journalists and several other civilians. Hare had ordered a pilot engine to travel ahead of the police train, acting on intelligence that the tracks had been sabotaged. As the pilot train was approaching Glen Rowan at about 2.30am, 
Kurnow went to the tracks and signaled it to stop to alert the driver of the danger. So the guy they let go. Yeah. Kelly had decided to let the hostages return home by that time and was in the middle of delivering them a lecture about police informers when Byrne came in from outside to say that the train had arrived. The outlaws donned their armour. Reportedly, Kelly also wore the green sash he was given as a young boy for saving another boy from drowning underneath the armour. Wow. And prepared themselves for the fight. While this was happening, Bracken escaped to explain the situation to the police. Just after 3 a.m., the four outlaws positioned themselves in the shadow of the veranda in the front of the hotel and opened fire when the police were about 30 yards away. So a veranda is like a front porch. Oh, okay. Um, the police returned fire, and in the span of 15 minutes, about 100 to 150 bullets were fired. Dang. There was a lull in the shooting as the women and children in the building were allowed to escape. Hare was wounded in the left wrist and had to return to Benella for treatment. Ned was wounded in the left hand and arm and his right foot, and Byrne was also shot in the leg and retreated into the hotel. Ned, bleeding heavily from his wounds, retreated behind the hotel and made his way into the bush where police found his skull cap and rifle around 100 yards from the hotel. So, like, his helmet. Oh, I thought... Not, like, like, his actual, like... That's what I thought you meant. I was like, oh, my God. He scalped himself and left it there. Yeah. um, At around 3.30 a.m. Kelly would later state that he was in the bushes not far from the police. Throughout the night, police surrounded the hotel and firing continued intermittently. Byrne was fatally shot in the groin at about 5am while making a toast to the Kelly gang in the bar. Between 5.30 and 7am, police reinforcements arrived from Wangaratta and Benella, bringing the police contingent to about 40. So 40 to 3 at this point. Right. Actually 40 to 2 because Ned's in the bush. Seriously wounded, Ned lay in the bush for, for most of the night. At dawn, dressed in his armour and armed with three handguns, he came out of the bush and attacked police from the rear. Eyewitnesses variously compared the figure moving in the early morning mist to a bunyip, the devil, or a ghost. A bunyip is an Aussie cryptid, which we will get into in another episode. Oh, okay. It's a, it's a cryptid. Mm. Um, <laughs> journalist Tom Carrington wrote, quote, with the stream rising from the ground, it looked for all the world like the ghost of Hamlet's father with no head, only a very long, thick neck. It was the most extraordinary sight I ever saw or read of in my life, and I felt fairly spellbound with wonder, and I could not stir or speak. End quote. Police returned fire as Kelly moved towards the hotel, staggering from his injuries, the weight of his armour and the impact of bullets on the plate iron which later he described as, quote, like blows from a man's fist, end quote. Kelly reportedly had difficulty aiming, firing, and reloading his weapons due to his injuries and limited vision through his helmet. So the helmet, I'll show you pictures later, but it's basically a metal plate around the torso and like a, a big can over your head, so like a cylindrical, and then it had like a slit yeah. for the eyes to see out of. Damn. Um, so like if you've got this... And that's all you can see. It's obviously pretty difficult to right. see things. You're right. Dan and Steve Hart provided intermittent covering fire from the hotel during the battle that lasted under half an hour until Ned was brought down with two shotgun blasts to his unprotected legs and thighs. Ned was disarmed and carried away to the railway station to have his injuries attended to. He was found to have more than 28 wounds to his body, including serious gunshot wounds to his left elbow and right foot along with multiple less serious gunshot wounds and cuts and abrasions from his armors. armor. So it took him 28 wounds to be downed. 
My God. <laughs> they they make them different in Ireland. <laughs> I, I really well, guess. In, in Australia. He was born in Australia. Yeah. Something in the water. <laughs> During this, the siege continued. At around 10 a.m., a ceasefire was called and the remaining 30 hostages left the hotel. They were made to lie down on the ground while they were checked to ensure that the outlaws were not among them. Two were arrested for being known Kelly sympathizers. By Monday afternoon, the shooting was over and a crowd of around 600 spectators had gathered at Glen Rowan. The police had originally ordered a cannon to be sent to blast out the outlaws, but this was decided against. Instead, they decided to burn them out. At 2.50pm, Senior Constable Charles Johnson, supported by covering fire from the police, set fire to the Glen Rowan Inn. A Catholic priest named Matthew Gibnett entered the burning building in an attempt to rescue anyone inside and discovered the bodies of Joe Byrne, Dan Kelly and Steve Hart. The exact circumstances of the death of Dan and Hart remain a mystery, though I have heard suicide, that they killed themselves rather than be taken by the police. Because, I mean, at this point, you're just going to be killed anyway. Yeah, true. Martin Cherry, a hostage who had been seriously wounded, was rescued from the kitchen behind the hotel. However, he would soon die after. And the body of Joe Byrne was recovered from the hotel bar. Um, It was only after the fire had died out at about 4pm that the badly burnt bodies of Dan and Steve Hart were retrieved. The death toll at Glen Rowan included the three members of the Kelly Gang and hostages Martin Cherry, 13-year-old John Jones, who died the following day at the Wangaratta Hotel, and George Metcalf, who died from his gunshot wound several months later. Jones's sister Jane received a head wound during the siege from a stray bullet and died two years later from a lung infection. However, her mother believed this was hastened by the injury. Hostages Michael Reardon and his baby sister Bridget were also wounded in the siege, along with Superintendent Hare and an Aboriginal trooper. Joe Byrne's body would be tied to the door of the Benella lockup and photographed. Despite his friends asking for the body, the police instead arranged a hasty inquiry and burial in a pauper's grave at Benella Cemetery. The charred remains of Dan Kelly and Steve Hart were taken to Greta and buried by their families in unmarked graves in the local cemetery. Now the only surviving member of the Kelly gang, Ned Kelly stood trial on the 19th of October, 1880. Side note. That's my best friend Eliza's birthday. Obviously not 1980, but... She was born in 1980. (laughs) She's immortal. Uh, In Melbourne, before said Sir Redmond Barry, which, if you recall, Barry was the judge who had earlier sentenced Kelly's mother to three years in prison for the attempted murder of Fitzpatrick. Mm. Charles Smythe and Arthur Chomley were the prosecutors and representatives on behalf of the Crown, whereas Henry Binden, a novice barrister, was representing Kelly. Ned was presented on the charge of Constable Lonigan and Constable Scanlon's murders. However, Ned was never charged with Sergeant Kennedy's murder. On October 28th, the trial was adjourned. Six days later, on November 3rd, Kelly was convicted of the willful murder of Lonigan and sentenced to be hanged on November 11th. Kelly was not, however, convicted of Scanlon's murder. The judge, Barry, after handing down the sentence, concluded saying, quote, May God have mercy on your soul, end quote. Kelly replied to this, quote, I will go a little further than that and say I will see you where I go, end quote. Dang. Judge Barry died 12 days later after Kelly's execution due to natural causes. That is wild. 
he he came he you came he so came we'll just for add him. a black magician to yes. the list of Kelly's uh, many titles. titles yeah <laughs> good lord. Across the streets of Melbourne in the week leading up to Kelly's execution, thousands gathered to rally in demand for a reprieve for Kelly, even gathering a clemency petition with over 32,000 signatures that was presented to the governor's private secretary. But the executive council announced that the hanging would continue as scheduled. A day before he was hanged, Kelly was granted time with relatives for farewells and he had his photo taken as a keepsake for them. Reportedly, his mother's last words to him were, quote, mind you die like a Kelly, end quote. On the fateful day of the execution, while Ned Kelly was being led to his death, he commented on the beauty of the flowers in the jail's garden. Ned Kelly's last words are disputed, with some accounts claiming that he said, such is life. Others claimed it was, ah, well, I suppose it has come to this. And still others say he mumbled or said nothing at all. Such is life is the most famous saying though Hmm. in march of the next year the victorian government approved an investigation into the conduct and actions of the victorian police during the kelly outbreak over six months and after 66 meetings 62 witness examinations and visits through the town of quote kelly country it was concluded that the police had acted properly in relation to the actions of the kelly's However, it also exposed widespread corruption in the police and ended many careers, including the chief commissioners. Many other officers, including the senior staff, were demoted, suspended and reprimanded for their actions. A list of 36 recommendations for reforms came about from the conclusion of the investigation. This was a post-mortem win for Kelly, as he had hoped his death would lead to an investigation of police conduct. And while this didn't exonerate the Kelly gang, nor Ned Kelly, it did strip the authorities of what little reputation they had left. Wow. The £8,000 reward for the Kelly gang's capture was divided among various people. £6,000 was distributed to the Victorian police, with Superintendent Hare, I know... Superintendent oh Hare God. receiving £800, and Kerno, the teacher that helps stop them, oh, yeah. received £550, which was later increased to £1,000 after he complained about his share. <laughs> the Aboriginal trackers, of which there were seven, each were awarded £50. That's it. Which is 8,613 Australian, 500, almost 6,000 US. However... Their money was instead given to the governments of Victoria and Queensland for safekeeping on the argument of, quote, it would not be desirable to place any considerable sum of money in the hands of persons unable to use it. I am not surprised. No. Unfortunately. Disgusting. Yep. Yeah. The lands of northeastern Victoria was speculated to see an increase in outbreaks of violence. However, while threats of violence and intimidation were received against those that aided the police, there was an overall reduction in not only violent crimes, but also in horse and cattle theft in general. Jones and Dawson argue that this... Who are um, historians? Argue that this success was due to the changes in policing methods. Furthermore, discussions were had with the Kelly family, assuring them that they would be receiving fair treatment should they keep the peace, saying that they would no longer be dispersing the family and their sympathisers from the land should they keep lawful behaviour. 
When Kelly's mother was released from prison in 1881 at the age of 53, she met up with police constable Robert Graham, and the two reached an understanding which helped reduce tension within the greater community. Death, however, was not quiet for Kelly, as on May 14, 1881, it was reported that Kelly's body was unlawfully dissected by a group of medical students who had removed his head and organs for study. While this was denied by the jail's governor at the time, modern forensics have confirmed after seeing sore cuts on Kelly's occipital bone mm. that the dissection had indeed occurred. However, not only was Kelly dissected, but in 1929, during the demolition of the old Melbourne jail, the bodies in the graveyards were uncovered during which workers and spectators alike stole various skeletal parts and skulls from a number of graves in hope they belonged to Kelly. Note from Jay, do you want to be haunted? Because that's how you get haunted. <laughs> One grave marked EK, which was situated by itself in the opposite side of the yard, was believed to be the resting place of Ned Kelly. The site foreman, Harry Franklin, retrieved the skull from the EK grave and gave it to the police as there had been no provision made for the disposal of the human remains. Franklin, at his own expense, eventually had the bodies reburied at, in Pentridge Prison and the skull from the EK grave was taken to Canberra to be studied by Sir Colin Mackenzie. For a period of time between 1934 and 1952, however, the skull was lost only to be found while cleaning an old safe. In 1972, the skull was put on display at the newly built Melbourne jail, until it was stolen six years later in 1978. In 2009, the skull eventually made its return as Tom Baxter, who had the skull in his possession, handed it over to the police. Eventually, it was found that the skull wasn't Ned Kelly's after DNA testing in 2014. Rather, Kelly's remains were found jumbled with many other remains inside a mass grave at Pentridge. What remains that were gathered and identified now rest, as was wished by Kelly, in the consecrated grounds of Greta Cemetery near his mother's. To quote Graham Seal, Ned Kelly has progressed from outlaw to national hero in a century, and to an international icon in a further 20 years. The still enigmatic, slightly saccharine, and ever ambivalent bush ranger is the undisputed, if not universally admired, national symbol of Australia. The figure of Ned Kelly has led to the creation of a national image that bears some relation to the man itself, perhaps about the same resemblance as Ned Kelly's armour had to the plough mould boards from which it was beaten. He is, a dif he is different things to different people, a murderer, an Australian Robin Hood, a social bandit, a revolutionary leader, even a commercial commodity. But to most of us, he is a somehow essentially Australian. End quote. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's that's the word th there is really no word to describe ned kelly honestly <laughs> i mean i was trying to come up with it like during the whole thing i was just like oh yeah i about said 50 shades of gray <laughs> i was trying to say <laughs> i was trying to say fast and the furious <laughs> fast but, and the yeah. furious i mean he was a family man who was just, yeah. you know, protesting just police corruption. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he didn't go about it the best way possible. <laughs> Probably not. But, you know, when it all comes down to it, family. <laughs> family, dude. Yeah. Maybe don't kill police officers, but... Yeah. Don't kill anybody, no, honestly. Well, yeah, no, don't kill anybody, <laughs> yeah. but, you know... <laughs> yeah. Killing you... the police that are persecuting you is maybe not yeah. a great thing. Yeah, um, we shouldn't be killing police officers or anything like that. Yeah. No. <clears throat> it's really bad. Murder is not the way, friends. Murder is not the way. Yes, if you want to get your point across, 
don't be killing police officers. Yeah. <laughs> but I hope you enjoyed that. I don't know. I did. I, I really do, did. I feel like I need to do more Australian things. Yeah. Because, I mean... <laughs> Your land I, is wild. <laughs> it, well, it is wild, but also, like, if I'm doing a cryptid that's from here... You're going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know this, I know this. And I kind of like bringing you things that are yeah. new and different. Yeah. So I was going to do Australian cryptids mm. this week. Yeah. However, I realized that this would be my second week doing, like, a collaboration of a couple of different cryptids. Right. Because, again, there's not a whole lot. Like, I couldn't do, I could probably do, like, a whole episode on, like, the bunyip or, like, other things like that. Mm. But for the most part, they're, like, smaller yeah. Like, here's the legend. There's not really any sightings of it. Yeah. Because um, a lot though. of it comes from, like, Aboriginal, yeah. uh, like, dreaming stories and stuff. Right. Um, so I was like, well, let's still stick with something Australian. And, yeah. That's what I, that's what I, I have. I did. It's... There's no words. He... He's wild. Like, every time I was like, oh, yeah, you know, like he should be about done because like <laughs> this is a lot of crazy stuff surely his luck's running out yeah his luck's gotta be running out and then you were just like and then he did this and i was like there's no way there's no <laughs> you way know what it reminds me of when you just said that what is how you're always like kaylin your stories yeah yes ned kelly is the kaylin ned kelly kaylin is, is the kaylin kaylin is the yes <laughs> But sorry for the almost two-hour episode, friends. Do not apologize. <laughs> Hopefully I'll be able to cut some bits, because we paused a little bit, and I went, hang on, let me do that over. Yeah. Well, so, I, I like it when my favorite podcasts, like, come out with really long episodes, because I'm like, oh, I wish this was longer, yeah. because I want to learn more about it. Like, don't cut things out. Like, I want to hear it. The thing that bugs me is when I used to be driving, so when I lived in Australia, my commute to work was anywhere from, like, an hour to an hour and a half, depending on what yeah. time I left. Mm. So I could get a good, like... Podcast substantial episode, episode of right. a podcast out in that mm. time but now that i'm driving 20 minutes to work it's like i can't like i hate to pause it because it's yeah, always same. like right where it's something interesting yeah so it's i've been listening to shorter podcasts like right. obscure appalachia though right. they her episodes kind of range from like 20 minutes to 40 50 okay so they're not especially a lot of her later ones mm-hmm. um and then uh Appalachian Monsters and Mysteries is also, they're shorter episodes, but they're not like, yeah, here's a 50 minute episode of (laughs) the scripted. Yeah. Yeah. They're still great. You did wonderful. I I really, I don't, I don't think I've ever said this to you, but I really like the way that you like write your stories or like write your episodes. Cause I feel like I just come on here and I'm like, then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. (laughs) Yours keep me on the edge of, of my seat though because a lot of the time you do things you cover the topics that I'm too afraid to cover <laughs> unless it was like uh, the Snowtown murders and even right. then I was still afraid to cover that I one. was very proud of you for that though thank you I know it was really hard <laughs> honestly it's because it's not some true crime stories are really not for the faint of heart no. I've heard the worst of the worst yeah so stuff doesn't and we will even... never cover those yeah oh no never but most things don't phase me anymore because I'm like <laughs> I've dead. just been I yeah dead I'm dead I really am <laughs> I've, I've gone through too much stuff to even care anymore <laughs> Like you could I tell love me that we're laughing over that. I, <laughs> I've been through so much trauma. You could tell me like demons come out of pigs buttholes and there are there are people out there who suck the demons down and then they like do crazy things and like hop like a rabbit and And you'd be like, Oh yeah. Carrots. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it sounds great. Like yeah. I that sounds very normal. That sounds like something yeah. Everybody sees that every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
really bad example, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I knew what you meant. Like, yeah. they could tell you the widest story, and you'd just be like, oh, yeah, cool. Yeah. Anyway, you want some coffee? Hey, guys. So our equipment just kind of shut itself down, which is fine. <laughs> uh, hopefully, we haven't lost the almost two hours of recording that we did. Right. Um, so we're just quickly making a quick see you later on... Uh, Garage band Garage that we're band, gonna yeah. post. So if that the quality is different, that's why. Yes, we will know now sorry. not to record two hour episodes. Yeah, we're uh, gonna <laughs> still record. Hopefully, it'll just work in the future. But I don't know. But <laughs> thank, thank you. you so much for listening. Bye guys. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to the Ghost Tea Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ghost Tea Podcast or on Instagram at Ghost Tea underscore Podcast. That's G-H-O-S-T-E-A underscore podcast. You can also find us on YouTube by searching Ghosty Podcast. If you have any topics you'd like us to discuss or just want to say hi, you can email us at ghostypodcast at outlook.com.